Phantasmagoria. Noun. A sequence of real or imaginary images like those seen in a dream. I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever used the word phantasmagoria, at least not in a conversation with a human being who I would like to have talk to me ever again. It's a big, clunky, obtuse word, and it's hard to parse any kind of meaning from it without the use of a dictionary. It also is one of the best words I've ever heard for describing film. Phantasmagoria was used to describe horror shows made by magic lanterns and their projectionists in the 18th century. Certainly, it is an apt definition of the work of Georges Méliès, and I think many filmmakers from the French New Wave and onward would say it is one of the best ways to describe movies themselves. I would agree with these theoretical people. After all, what is Star Wars, Metropolis, Children of Paradise, or Tampopo? but a sequence of real or imaginary images like those seen in a dream. But you know what I wouldn't describe as a phantasmagoria? The early animation of James Stewart Blackton from last episode. Okay, that is a little unfair. The haunted hotel room was pretty phantasmagorific, but the various phases of funny faces was shall we say, lacking? It's not to say that these movies weren't impressive, but it is clear that another artist would have to take animation out of the vaudeville parlor and into the starlit dream world that is the movies. Today we will meet that artist. This is the 29th episode of the History of Film, Phantasmagoria. ever written for the screen is as dramatic as the story of the screen itself. Jean-Louis Quartet was born in Paris on the 4th of January, 1857. For completely inscrutable reasons, Emile would adopt a pen name in adulthood, under which he would make his movies. That name is the much easier to say Emile Cole. So, to make it more consistent both for you as a listener and for me as a podcaster, we are going to call him that from now on. Cole was born into modest circumstances. His father was a rubber salesman, and his mother was a seamstress. At the age of six, tragedy entered the boy's childhood with the death of his mother. It was at this time that Cole's father sent him to a prestigious boarding school where he would learn one thing that was more important to him than any other. He liked to draw, and he was pretty good at it. Cole would continue at his first boarding school until about the age of 13, when the Franco-Prussian War began and changed both his destiny and eventually the lives of millions of other people. The Franco-Prussian War is an amazingly important event in world history, 
that isn't talked about much in the United States. The Prussian invasion of the French Empire in 1870 would change France into a republic again, make Germany into a nation-state, and make coal into a young Parisian, thrust into a new and exciting world of marionette puppets, caricature drawing, and political cartoons. Cole took to these new cultural influences immediately. Despite the best attempts of his father to put him in steady careers, the life of an insurance broker, jeweler, or enlisted soldier simply wouldn't take. Cole was going to be a cartoonist. In 1878, he became an assistant to a political comic artist of renown, and eventually became a published political satirist and cartoonist himself. Cole's career as a satirist continued until he paid a fateful and likely legendary visit to Galmont Studios in 1907. The story goes like this. Cole was furious. His art was precious to him, and he was shocked Shocked, I tell you, to see his ideas illegally reproduced on an advertising poster for a <gasps> Gelmont film. Incensed, he went to the studio and demanded to see the man himself. If the meeting happened at all, I imagine it went something like this. A knock is heard on Gelmont's office door. Cole opens the door. Monsieur Gelmont, I presume. Gelmont replies. Yes, sir, it is I, Monsieur Gamont. How may I help you today? Cole practically shouts, I am aghast to find my ideas illegally reproduced on a poster for one of your movies. Mr. Gamont looks up, adjusting his glasses. My poster? Oh, yes, dear, that is a problem. Well, here, I will compensate you fairly for it. And while you are here, I was wondering if you could take a look at something for me. Cole is taken aback by the justice the fairness, the sheer dignity of the great Gelmont of Gelmont Studios. Oh, I would be delighted, he replied. Anyway, at this supposedly real meeting, the improbable conversation continued with Gelmont offering Cole a job and asking him to take a look at the films of U.S. animator James Stewart Blackton. Apparently, no one else at Gelmont Studios could figure out how Blackton's animated movies worked. Cole was on the case, and his artistic genius was the only intellect who could figure out the magic behind Blackton's method. Cole set to work, making his own animated film for Gaumont, thus beginning French and world animation. Aside from being obviously silly, I personally have a hard time believing the story of Cole's epic meeting with Gaumont because it was pretty obvious how Blackton's movies were made, even in 1907. Stop-motion animation had been widely used for years, and even more simply, filmmakers were well aware that you could stop the camera, change something, start the camera, and make that change look instantaneous. We've been talking about that since we met Georges Méliès all the way back in episode 7. Whether or not the meeting happened exactly the way it was reported afterwards is of little importance, though, because one way or another, Cole was hired by Gaumont to be a filmmaker, in 1908, Cole would release his first movie, called Phantasmagoria.
Phantasmagoria is an appropriate title for the movie Cole would make. In fact, the best way I could describe the two-minute spectacle is a sequence of imaginary images like those seen in a dream. Aside from a quick instance of a hand drawing the first figure seen in the movie, the whole thing is simple line figures, interacting with each other in impossible ways and then transforming into other figures or objects. It's made like a stream of consciousness, and watching it felt more to me like a psychological test than a movie as such, which must have landed as very interesting in 1908, because it is interesting in 2022. While Phantasmagoria is short, there is a lot of technical innovation on display. The biggest of these innovations is the actual medium used to create the animation. Remember that James Stewart Blackton's movies were animated chalk drawings. They were literally drawn on a chalkboard. This has its roots in the live chalk drawings and caricatures that Blackton and others would do for vaudeville performance. It would have seemed natural to Blackton to make a special movie version of his live chalk drawings. Animating in chalk, though, has a lot of technical limitations. Erasing chalk is difficult, imprecise, and smudgy. Once erased, the previous frame of animation can no longer be used as a reference. This means that only part of the animation can be replaced, so that some kind of referent can exist to make it look as smooth as possible, which results in the animation being extremely stiff, as not all of it can move at the same time. Chalk itself is thick, and unless the artist is using a truly enormous chalkboard, getting fine detail out of the medium would be difficult. So, keeping all that in mind, now remember that Emil Cole was not a chalk artist. He drew satire for publication. For Cole, chalk likely never even seemed a viable option for animation. It would have seemed natural to him just to use a pen and paper, and that's exactly what he did. In Phantasmagoria, Cole would photograph over 700 different drawings on separate pieces of paper, which when taken together, would make up his movie. Cole's paper drawings didn't have any of the disadvantages we just described for chalk animation. Because earlier drawings could be used as references, transitions and motion could be accomplished with remarkable fluidity, and the images themselves were exceptionally clear. With the advent of photographed paper drawings, animation, as most of us think of it today, had begun. Another smaller innovation in Phantasmagoria is how the film was printed. Cole drew the images that made up the short on white paper with black ink, but that's not how the film itself looks when you watch Surviving Prince of It today. Instead, the figures stand out like neon lights. The lines that make the characters are a brilliant white against a background as dark as space. To achieve this effect, the film was simply printed in negative. This is our first time seeing any movie that hasn't been produced and shown in a positive print. I can't say for sure that Phantasmagoria is the first movie purposely shown in negative, but I can say it was at least one of the first, and is a notable beginning for a technique, albeit a technique that won't come up much. Cole's new animated film was a success, 
and animation would be a major focus for the rest of his career. Over the next 15 years, Cole would draw over 500 animated films, an impressive number of shorts even for a live-action filmmaker, but one that is absolutely ludicrous when you consider that each of them involves hundreds of drawings and animation had barely been invented. Emil Cole continued to develop the style of animation he pioneered in Phantasmagoria for at least one year after his original film was released. His next films continued to be about cute, simple characters made of white lines against a completely black background. If you'd like to take a look at one, I suggest Drama Among the Puppets, which is sometimes called A Love Affair in Toyland. It has the same art style, the same stream-of-consciousness, near-abstract sensibility, while also feeling a bit more sophisticated than Phantasmagoria. That sophistication was about to be taken to a whole other level, with a movie that is perhaps Cole's most influential, Bewitched Matches, also from 1908. Bewitched Matches is the first Cole film we've seen that has any kind of a plot. Three young women invite a witch inside to tell their fortune. Their father comes home, is incensed at the witch's presence in his house, and demands that she leaves. Upset at his rudeness, the witch curses his box of matches before departing. The father sits down to light his pipe and is left in awestruck horror as the matches spring to life and dance before his eyes. Eventually, his daughters, who had left with the witch, re-enter the room, and the father seeing them takes courage and throws his box of matches into the fireplace where it explodes. If that isn't a good old 1908 movie plot, I don't know what is. The quote-unquote plot of the film is clearly only a frame for the animated matches sequence. As you may expect from learning about Cole's other early movies, these light-colored matches move around on a dark table before transitioning into other figures and objects. They transform into a horse, then a windmill, then an American flag. In a unique and unexpected sequence, the matches form a pipe, which then blends together into white line animation before the sequence dissolves again into matches. The movie is, in essence, a matchstick version of the other films we've talked about, though far more sophisticated and interesting to watch. Matchsticks would go on to be broadly influential and was listed as an inspiration by filmmakers in at least Russia, India, and Argentina. Emile Cole would continue to make movies with Gaumont until about 1910, when he would leave for the greener pastures of Pate and then Eclair Studios in 1912. While working for Eclair, Cole was sent across the Atlantic to train animators in the U.S. While overseas, in addition to planting the seeds that would eventually grow into generations of animators, Cole would create successful hand-drawn animated films, one of which was an animated adaptation of the then-popular American comic strip Snookums. After teaching his own particular brand of magic to American filmmakers, Cole would return to France in 1914, just before hell came to Earth in the form of World War I. It is the same story we have told many times here on the history of film, and unfortunately, one that we will have to continue to tell. 
The war and its aftermath were not kind to Emil Cole or his family. He would stay with the Cole making animated movies until the end of the war, but wouldn't be in film much longer than that. His last movie, The Puppet Looks for Lodging, was released in 1921 when he was 64 years old, at least according to his Wikipedia article, which sadly is the most detailed account of his life I can find on the open internet. His last film was a financial flop. Emil Cole, the man who invented paper still animation, was discarded by the industry he helped create. As the years wore on, the Great Depression decimated his finances in the early 1930s. In 1937, while working by candlelight at his desk, his beard caught fire, burning his face and sending the then 80-year-old man to the hospital. Cole would die at the age of 81, forgotten, on the 20th of January, 1938, the same day that Georges Méliès would take his last breath. Emile Cole played an important role in the development of animation. It is unfortunate that his work was quickly and permanently overshadowed by the animators that came after him. These filmmakers include Windsor McKay, Felix the Cat creators Otto Messmer and Jor Orleano, and a scrappy young cartoonist named Walt Disney. It's easy to see why these filmmakers overshadow Cole. While his techniques were innovative, his line work was simple, and often lacked any kind of rich narrative or rhetorical purpose. While those who came after Cole would make greater movies and have a wider impact, the first simple stick figures who brought sheets of paper to life still deserve our attention today. We wouldn't have Encanto, The Wall, or Howl's Moving Castle without them. That would be a very natural place to end this episode. The death of Emil Cole and the beginning of a new generation of animators who would carry the medium forward to impressive artistic heights. But I would be remiss if we didn't talk about something that is important, but definitely will not fit into any of our other animation episodes. Will everyone please hold their applause for the return of Italian futurism? Remember those guys who love race cars and war but hate women in libraries? Well, at the same time movies like Thais were being made, the painter brothers Arnaldo and Gianna Bruno Corra, ooh, Bruno Corra, Bruno Corra, I think I did that right, were making their own kind of futurist film. The brothers were interested in exploring what they called visual music and were experimenting with painting directly onto film stock rather than using movie cameras to capture images made on paper or a chalkboard. Aside from the proto-film work of Charles-Emile Reynaud, which we talked about last episode, and not counting the hand-colored live-action film that was common at the time, this may have been the very first time that anyone experimented with painting directly onto film stock. By doing so, the Bruno Corra brothers made something amazing, the first, abstract films. The movies weren't about anything. They were shape and color and sensation and would set the stage for animated abstraction that continues to this day. The Bruno Corra brothers produced four animated films, 
A Chord of Color, Study of the Effects of Four Colors, Song of Spring, and Flowers, all in the early 1910s. All of them were destroyed in the bombing of Milan in 1943. That's the reason we can't talk about them in greater detail now. While the comparatively low profile of the Bruno Corra movies means that they themselves didn't likely have an outsized impact on the development of film history, there are a couple of things worth noting about them here. One is that animated film and live-action film are different from each other, but in many ways, they are the same as each other. What I mean by that is both kinds of motion pictures exert an influence on one another and respond to many of the same cultural influences. In this case, Italian futurism wasn't just affecting plays, paintings, and live-action movies, but, as we see, animated film as well. These early abstract films remind me that putting art forms in their own little lanes and suggesting that they never or rarely mix isn't always a helpful paradigm when examining their history as it actually happened. The other thing that I think is really neat about this is that these movies were being made in 1910. Can you even believe that? The first completely abstract color films were made four whole years before the birth of a nation, and only seven years after the great train robbery. This means that art film, or avant-garde film, or those weird movies that only film buffs like, are as old as movies themselves. We will see a lot more of them in future episodes. But we will not next week. No, then our attention will be diverted, finally, to a dinosaur named Gertie in a ship called the Lusitania. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The History of Film. It has been a long time coming, as I have had to deal with two of the most hectic and unusual months of my life. I'd also like to give a special thank you to all of my Patreon supporters for helping me through this. I'd like to say thank you to Moritz, Ed and Sherry, Melissa, and Andrew for all of their support, and let them know that what they do makes this show possible. If you would like to support this show and its mission to make high-quality film history available for everyone, you can do so by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash history of film. My favorite fact that didn't make it into the show this week, Emile Cole was part of an art movement called the Incoherence, a short-lived French movement that prefigured some of the anti-art movements like Dada that sprung up after World War I. Cole's fascination with incoherent art explains his attraction to strange, shifting animation that lacks any real narrative. I didn't talk about this influence in the show because it doesn't have a huge bearing on actual film history, and I didn't have great sources for it, but I still think it's a bit of great context and some that I wanted to include here. If you'd like to email me, you can do so at historyoffilmpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and join me next week for another exciting episode of the history of film.